0: Been a while since we've been in the New Testament. It's not because we ignore the New Testament. It is because most churches, most pastors, most Christians ignore the Old Testament, which is about two thirds of the Bible. And actually, as I've gone over all the sermon series over the last 23 years that I've preached, this is the last book of the New Testament that is um, more than a page or two long. Uh, so, I don't know what's going to happen with the rest, but um, I am considering doing something that I really haven't done ever, and that is doing a, what are called topical textual messages on uh, issues of perhaps current concern, but more than anything, I don't want to scratch where you are not itching. All of which is to say is that before we are done with the book of Philippians, um, I will solicit your suggestions of topics or just a question or what have you, and you can send those to the church email at the website, and I will get them. This morning we are in the book of Philippians. I've entitled it, Hashtag Philippian Christians. If you don't know what a hashtag is, ask your children or grandchildren. Less than 20 years after Jesus' resurrection, the Church of Philippi was founded, and it was the first church to be founded by Paul in what we know today as Europe. I want to put a map up there just to give you an idea for current times here. Um, I know you're all really astute in world geography, as I am. Uh, This is Greece, with Corinth, Athens, Greece, the island of Crete. And uh, Philippi is, where'd you go, Philippi? There we go. <laughs> the one with the square around it, go figure. All right, so we got the Asian See, see and I knew where I was talking about it. I still couldn't find it. Anyway, there you go. One of the first seats of the Christian faith. I want to begin this morning by reading... Chapter 1, verse 1, which is as far... Actually, I'm not even sure we'll get through all of verse 1 today. Go figure. Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and the deacons. I envision Paul texting from his smartphone using hashtag Philippian Christians as he's texting to all the people who were part of this young church plant in Europe. It's Paul's most positive letter of all the pastoral, what are called the pastoral epistles or letters, which are letters that he wrote to the various churches of the day. This is the most positive of them all which is somewhat remarkable in that Paul is writing from the unenviable position of legal constraint most likely while he was in Rome and Timothy is with him and Paul opens his letter using the title here of bondservant rather than apostle which we hear him use and the reason he does so is that For example, when he writes to the church of Galatia, they have some serious issues that Paul needs to confront and address. And so he puts right out front there that he is, Paul, the apostle, as if to establish his authority in his calling the church of Galatia to account. But here he uses the word bondservant. And Paul's identity as bondservant of Christ, coming right out of the gate, makes a profound theological statement which tells a ton about how Paul views his relationship to the living God. So we don't want to gloss over it, for in the term bondservant lies, if you will, the reinforced concrete foundation on which all other observations and all other answers about our lives and about our relationships to the living God will be considered. And perhaps the greatest detriment today, as it pertains to the vitality and the usefulness of Christians to the Church of Jesus Christ, is that the concrete foundations of the faith once for all delivered to the saints have been demolished over the centuries, being replaced by a foundation which amounts to flour and water. Otherwise known as, throw in some paper and it's paper mache. There's no mystery why the church is in the state it's in and why it's imploding on itself. If you've ever worked with flour and water, it's awesome for making gravy. It even works really well, as I said, mixed with some paper, and you can make scary masks. But it makes a lousy foundation upon which to build something. Bondservant, the term that Paul uses is noteworthy because Paul's understanding of who he is as a Christian has become quite foreign to the Christians of America where the prevailing view in Christendom is that God is bondservant to the masses. Have a need? No problem. Just text the great provider. Have a want? Just follow hashtag gimme gimme. Got yourself in a mess? Just call one eight six six bail me now But that's not the way Paul writing through the understanding of the Holy Spirit tells it. He writes identifying himself as one who is owned. He writes as one who is under assignment to do the work of his master, regardless of where that may take him and regardless of the lifestyle consequences that go with doing God's work. And for Paul, his servitude to the master of the universe has taken him yet again, writing from Roman bondage, under arrest for the ghastly crime of preaching Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. And don't you dare yawn, writing off Paul as Paul the Apostle. The great, the unique, the specially ordained human being, being in a class all by himself. Don't you dare write him off as someone whose life is extraordinary and supernatural and thus basically irrelevant to real people like you and me. Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. Remember, Paul is the same man who prided himself on being an enemy of Christ. And prided himself on being an enemy of those who followed Christ. Once he had his encounter with the risen Savior, though, he could not, not live for him as his bondservant, as his slave. The problem today is that most North American Christians have not had an encounter with the living Savior, but with a caricature of that Savior. We all know what a caricature is. Put one up for example. All right? This is a caricature. A caricature, by definition, is an exaggeration by means of ludicrous distortion of parts and characteristics. Unless I be accused of being partisan, let's put up another example. That's Mitch McConnell, who just was reelected for another term. No commentary there. The illusion to having encountered a caricature goes back to a quote by British historian Arnold Toynbee in the early 1900s who wrote, Most people have not rejected Christianity, but a caricature of it. Remember again what a caricature is. It's an exaggeration by means of ludicrous, that means insane distortions of parts or characteristics. So you were able to recognize who those caricatures were. So there's obviously some semblance to truth to reality there, but it's way out of proportion. Well, let me reconstruct Dr. Toynbee's Phrase to reflect the sentiment of today's state of Christian mindset in the free world, at any rate. Many Christians today do not worship the biblical Jesus, but in fact a caricature of him. That caricature is the cosmic bellhop, the genie in the bottle who exists to grant the Christians every wish. I wrote about it in detail in that dynamic book, The Proper Pursuit of Prosperity, which is still available from yours truly. Signed if you like. But you see, those who have been changed by the real Savior, not the caricature, see themselves as bondservants of their Lord and bondservants exist for their Master. Master. Breaking news this week, quoting, An Islamic court in the Sudanese capital has said that a pregnant woman sentenced to hang for apostasy after she married a Christian man will be allowed to give birth before she is executed. Miriam Yahya Ibrahim, age 27, was born to a Muslim father but brought up Christian by her mother was convicted on Sunday in Khartoum and given three days to recant her faith. That means to backtrack on her faith, to say, no, she was only kidding. She doesn't believe in the Christ, etc., etc. She was given three days to recant her faith or face a possible death sentence. Well... That possibility turned into reality, quoting the judge. We gave you three days to recant, but you insist on not returning to Islam. I sentence you to be hanged, Judge Abbas Mohammed al-Khalifa told Miss Ibrahim, Ibrahim, addressing her by her father's name, Adraf al-Hadi Muhammad Abdullah. Mrs. Ibrahim also faces a sentence of flogging for adultery on the grounds that her marriage to a Christian man from the South Sudan is considered void under Islamic law. That would be called Sharia law. I underscore that because there is tremendous pressure in the United States of America to have Sharia law courts, where Sharia law is recognized and enforced for sake of the Muslim population. I kid you not. Mrs. Ibrahim told the judge, I am a Christian and I have never committed apostasy. In other words, I've never fallen away from Islam. I was never a Muslim to begin with. You see, those who have been changed, not by a caricature, but by the real Savior, see themselves as bondservants of the Lord, regardless of where that takes them and what that means. So Paul, it seems, is, would be, should be, could be, must be, the example of bold, obedient faithfulness, the one called St. Paul in the Roman Catholic tradition. His life of faith should also be, then, emblematic of the blessings of obedience that fell to him. In other words, if anyone should have experienced the blessing of God in tangible, physical, worldly terms because of their faith and faithfulness to the Lord, certainly it would be Paul. And yet the reality of Paul's experience of such blessing is troublesome. What I am going to be basically talking out of for a couple of seconds here is Paul's own words in 2 Corinthians. But what I want you to do this morning as I I do this is I want you to try to imagine that you are sitting this morning in one of America's premier megachurches of, say, 10,000 or more, and the morning's testimony is from a big-name Christian missionary who the pastor of the church has invited to be with them this morning to share his story of the wonder-working of Jesus with the churches that have been supporting him. By the way, the preacher has been propping up, just coincidentally, his new book, The God of Winks, Smiles, and Chocolate Jimmies. So the pastor invites the missionary to come up to faint, polite applause. So he says, and by the way, the missionary's name just coincidentally happens to be Paul as well. So he says, we are so excited to have you with us this morning and to hear about this wonder-working Jesus for whom you've been out there and you have been planting churches and you've seen the power of God and the anointing has been upon you. We want you to share with us now. Maybe uh, just a, a fuller view of what ministry as a bond servant of Christ is like on the field. We get your letters; we so look forward to them, and we love the highlights of all that the Lord is doing and working in the lives of people. <laughs> and we read them every quarter when we get them. He says, yeah, "I send those out monthly, actually." Oh, did I say quarterly? I meant monthly. (coughs) He says, sure, I'd be happy to share this morning. I'm just so happy to be with you and all your faithfulness in supporting me all these years that I've been out there on the mission field. But you wanted to know what life was like outside of the little missionary letter. Well, let me just begin. Um, Let me see. Yeah, I guess uh, over the past couple of years, five times I've received from the Jewish population where I've tried to preach Jesus, I've received 39 lashes. The pastor is rather stiffened up. He says, "Uh, (coughs) okay. He says, yeah, uh, the reason for 39 is because 40 was established as being the maximum limit that a human being could take. So in other words, the only thing justifying 40 lashes would be the death sentence. And so it was established that 39 would be that which would take a brink to, man to the brink, but would not kill them. Hopefully. This is very good. And what else? Has this wonderful Jesus done? We want to hear about the miracles. He says, well, uh, you know, you wanted a balanced view. Uh, Let's see. In addition to the five times that I received from the Jews' 39 lashes, uh, three, one, two, yeah, it was three, I think. I don't know. My mind's a little foggy from the uh, trauma that I received. Three times I've been beaten by rods, basically sticks or clubs. Once I was stoned, and the pastor awkwardly interrupts and says, wait a minute, stoning, I thought stoning was like for, again, a death sentence. He says, well, it certainly is, but it's also just used, again, kind of like the lashes where they don't stone you to death. They just use it as a disciplinary sort of measure. He says, and you've been stoned? He goes, yeah, I've been stoned in... uh, and, of course, there's the whole transportation issue in that part of the world. Uh, we depend a lot on ships, and three times I've been shipwrecked. I mean, the boat was just kind of washed out and crushed from under us as we hit reefs or rocks and everything else. It gets rather perilous. In fact, one one night I remember, oh, that was a bad night. I spent uh, all day and all night, about a good 24 hours in the deep. Fortunately, I found a door that had, been uh, broken loose from the ship that I could float on there. Now the pastor's really getting a little uncomfortable and wants us to move along. Yeah, and about those signs and wonders. And he goes, well, you know, you read about those in my newsletter. But uh, so, yeah, you know, I've been traveling around and your money's well spent, I have to tell you that. But of course, we're always underfunded as missionaries. And uh, I've been on frequent journeys. I've been in dangers from rivers. Because, you know, we're, we're not exactly about bridges and bridge building and everything else. So we go across rivers that really shouldn't be forded. But in order to get to the people that need Jesus, we have to do so. And so that can be perilous. And in fact, we've lost a few along the way trying to cross those rigid rivers. And then, of course, there's dangers constantly from robbers. There's dangers from my own countrymen, ironically. And then again, there's dangers from the Gentiles, those who just categorically, you know, don't believe. But we figured, well, you know what? Maybe if we go to the city where it's more populated, we'll be able to have a little more liberty, a little more freedom, a little more safety. He says, no, there's dangers in the city. And so we left the cities and we'd go out to the wilderness. He says, but no, there was dangers in the wilderness and dangers out on the sea again when we would take off. And then we thought we would find comfort with people who seemed to be of like heart and like mind. But lo and behold, there were dangers among false brethren. He says, yeah, you wanted the other side of it. I've been in labor and hardship. Through more sleepless nights than I can recount, generally in hunger and thirst, often completely, utterly without food, and in just even, even even, protection from the elements. We've been in cold and exposure. But you know what, he says, apart from all those things, he says there is the external things that, that really just tear my soul apart as a bondservant of Christ. And those external things is the daily pressure on me of the concern for all the churches. I mean, I know maybe I shouldn't be wearing it all and taking it upon myself, but who's weak without myself being weak and who's led into sin without my intense concern? The pastor cuts him off at that point, sends him back to his chair. The missionary gets a big round of awkward applause as the preacher dives into the fourth point of his message that morning. I am quoting. The fourth aspect to developing a fresh vision for your life is discovering how to experience more of God's favor. The Bible clearly states, God has crowned us with glory and honor. Psalm 8, verse 5. The word honor could be translated as favor, and favor means to assist, to provide with special advantages, and to receive preferential treatment. In other words, God wants to make your life easier. And the pastor pauses on that for a moment and he says, Has our missionary friend left the building by any chance? He wants to assist you, to promote you, to give you advantages. He wants you to have preferential treatment. But if we are going to experience more of God's favor, we must live more favor-minded. Turn to your neighbor and say, we must live more favor-minded. That is page 38 from Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen. Now let me read Psalm 8, verses 3 through 9, from which Psalm 8, 5 was extracted and so abused, beat up, twisted, and perverted. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? And yet you have made him a little lower than God, and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make Him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth! You see, there's just one itsy-bitsy problem with Osteen's use of Psalm 8 the way he does. Psalm 8 is about God. It's not about man. It's not about tapping into God's treasure chest of magical powers to bring about some kind of mystical favor that will enable us to obtain our dreams and our fantasies and all our material wishes. It is about the inexplicable. It is about the utterly incomprehensible, luxurious grace of God bestowed upon man by God's sovereign choice in spite of who man is in and of himself. And David, writing that psalm, has the moment of realization gazing up at the stars and he is undone seeing himself against the backdrop of the universe. Let me have the worship team come up. Just about half my lifetime ago, when I was age 30, on my second or third attempt to scale the summit of Mount Rainier, standing nearly three miles above the earth gives a first-hand view of the heavens experienced by few. It is startling to get a sense of of how small you are. It is life-altering to understand how great thou art. If you have never had the experience of standing in a place at night that is unimpeded by light pollution, having been engulfed by the galaxies above you, And feeling your knees giving way, and I mean that literally, under the weight of the glory of God, you have not grasped the awe of David's majestic praise there in Psalm 8, or of the offensiveness of Osteen's heavenly insult. As Saul of Tarsus, Paul had seen, Paul had heard the risen Savior. As Paul the bondservant, he understood and he knew who God was and who he was. He knew who God was and he knew who he was. And his response was to sign his life over to the one who had purchased him with the price of God's own Son. Paul opens his letter as a bondservant of the Lord, and he is writing to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. Now what I want you to note is that the biblical use of the word saint here is different than what is commonly thought of today a saint here is a living person it is a person who is part of the church at Philippi and is a follower of Christ the tradition observed in the church at Rome called canonization where Christians with extraordinary lives were branded with sainthood, did not begin until around the 10th century. Along with the saints, which, in light of it all, simply refers to every believer, every follower of Christ. In addition to them, Paul also acknowledges the overseers, and the deacons of the Philippian church, showing that from the earliest days of church life, there was structure, there was delineation of office and function, and there was organized leadership. In other words... (laughs) There was an institutionalization of the local church from the beginning. And if the church at Philippi is not early enough for you, remember I said it began about 20 years after the resurrection of Christ, then just go to the book of Acts where the very first church has begun. When you look at the book of Acts, you don't have to get out of chapter 2, and then chapter 4, and then chapter 6. For we already see organization. We already see leadership structure. We already see delegation of functions based on individuals' personal gifting and calling. Which means hmm, that the perennial reaction in Christendom to the scourge of the institutional church is yet one more manifestation of man's unredeemed nature, as in the garden, demanding autonomy demanding self-rule even within the body of Christ. Let me be more plain if that wasn't plain enough. There is an, eccle- an e- there is an ecclesiological fad that means pertaining to the organized church. There is a fad that has been going around in cycles, probably since the inception of the church. The fad is brought on by the incessant disgruntlement with the church by people going to the church. And every generation has its own twist and its own spin and its own complaint, but basically can be reduced... To this, sit down, this is going to be a shock and brand new. The church of Jesus Christ is imperfect. I know. And I get so annoyed, in case you couldn't tell, with the Christians who are just so fed up and so tired with the institutional church. And you know the old cliche, and it's well-worn, but it's very apt right here. Well, if you ever find the perfect church, don't go there, because you will ruin it. You see, we are by nature inherently imperfect. That's why we need a Savior for crying out loud. If the church was made up of perfect people, we'd have no need for Jesus. Go figure. Yeah. I'm not being fed. That's one of my favorite ones. Well, if you're not being fed, where's your fork and your spoon? You're supposed to be feeding yourself. God's given gifts to mankind to help them in the process. But since when do you sit there like this going, ah, ah, I'm hungry, feed me. And of course, I'm not being fed actually means the preacher doesn't talk about what is important to me. Or, he talks about what's important to me, but he doesn't say the things that I want him to say. So I'm not being fed, and I'm going elsewhere, rumph. Well, don't let the door hit you on the can when you go out. Did I say that? I'm glad I said it the way I said it. <laughs> With sympathy... I acknowledge that the church, in its imperfection, for sure, through the ages, goes off on tangents, chasing things that it should leave alone. Absolutely. That it ignores things that it should be chasing. It emphasizes certain elements of life that should be minimized. And it minimizes elements of life that should be emphasized. I got it. I know it. In it's imperfection. It decries aspects of personal freedom and preference which are often unclear in Scripture while excusing or even affirming behaviors and beliefs that are clearly unbiblical. I know! The church is imperfect! And the church just seems to end up going down a track, sooner or later, of a formulaic, a patternized, to coin my own word, a patternized, regulated, orchestrated ways of conducting worship, meaning the Sunday gathering together. For which, of course, it is criticized as being too memorized or too. Too contrived. Or it's too lifeless. Or it's too enthusiastic. Or it's too simplistic. Or it's too intellectual. As being too political. Or not political enough. As too swayed by culture. Or not culturally relevant enough. The church is imperfect. I know. And it is still the bride of Christ. Beware, beware of calling, acting and treating the bride of Jesus as a dog. You think Jesus doesn't know what his bride is like? It's precisely why he came and why we are told that when he appears, when we come into that fullness of all that we are in Christ, we will be like Him having been made without spot or blemish or wrinkle. Not because of anything we have done. The Lord did not go into this marriage with blinders on. The answer always comes back to some form of a demand to jettison the ways of the fleshly past with the always spiritually sounding demands, get ready, to be more like the New Testament church, which apparently is the model of authentic, intentional, organic, and holy worship of the saints. Oh, this is really interesting. I just don't know from what Bible and from what church history this sentiment spawns. I already mentioned that this letter to the church at Philippi was Paul's only Truly positive letter to one of those authentic, organic, intentional, and holy churches. And yet, even in the book of Philippians, what we are going to come upon is Paul still going to include some exhortation to the Philippian believers. That is, some corrections. But this was the best of his pastoral epistles. So when we think of authentic, oh, I love the word authentic and organic. I'm looking for an authentic church, an organic church. It's the sexy, anti-organized church IED used among spiritual youngins today. And I don't necessarily mean chronologically young. They don't seem to acknowledge the organic church at Corinth. New Testament church. We need to be more like the New Testament church. Really? No. I don't want to be. The church at Corinth was so authentic, I love that word, that Paul wrote four letters to them. Only two of which have, been, have remained, which are what we have in the Scriptures. And they are both very unflattering For the purposes for which he writes, the authentic New Testament church, that we need to be more like. And yet, the church at Corinth was an authentic cross section of the immoral culture of the day. Go figure. Let me refresh your memory. Paul writing by the Holy Spirit to that New Testament church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there is immorality among you. This is the church now he's writing to. Immorality among you and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. Do you realize how scandalous that is? He's telling the church that wears Jesus' name that you guys are not only imperfect sinners, but you're worse than the pagan culture around you. We need to be more like the organic, authentic New Testament church. Go right ahead. I've had my fill of it. Someone specifically has his father's wife. Well, that's cute. We're just a very loving church. Hmm. So that's the way it is in that family. Hmm. All you Ferris Bueller fans know what I'm... Anyway, you've become arrogant and you have not mourned instead so that one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Meaning what? Again, they were worse than the culture, and instead of calling sin, sin, stop me if you've heard this one, they accommodated it. Sound familiar? But I thought, everyone is always welcome in church. They are. Absolutely, everyone is always welcome in church, right up until they assert hear this claim clearly right up until they assert their worship of self by determining what is right and good and holy and insisting the church affirm such idolatrous ways and the holy spirit says you'd better take charge of that one and boot them Oh. oh, it's so unloving, so unchristlike. Mm. No, it's authentic. It's organic. Mm. It's intentional. A few chapters later, in this same New Testament church, the authentic, organic, intentional New Testament church at Corinth, chapter 11. Paul writes, in giving this instruction, he's talking about their coming together for communion. You probably know the passage fairly well. I do not praise you. What? No, when you come together for the Lord's Supper, I do not praise you. Why? Because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there's divisions existing among you. And in part, I believe it. Backbiting, territorialism. That's my ministry. It's my ministry. That ministry gets more shrift than our ministry. They get more support than our ministry. Nobody supports our ministry. Let's go to the Lord's table. Praise the Lord. There must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, it's not to eat the Lord's supper, for in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. <laughs> Yeah, I ran out of that new wine, you know, that non-alcoholic containing new wine you always hear about from the Baptists, you know. I ran out, I so said, I'm going to go to communion today so I can get my little fix of ethanol, you know. You know, we don't think about the the gravity of what is there in the New Testament church. And it's not just the Corinthian church. I don't have the time. Next week, though, I'm going to bring in some more authentic, organic New Testament intentional churches called Sardis and Laodicea and Ephesus and Pergamum and Thyatira. Let's be more New Testamental. No, I don't want to be. I'm pretty happy being institutional. Institutional. Yeah, I feel so much better. If I've offended anyone this morning, seriously, I don't care. (laughs) It's just, it, it, it's, it's so maddening because not a week now, not a week goes by when you don't hear again. What I'm seeing is evangelicalism, formerly the trusted, the respected, the show me where it's written in the word kind of church is being so sucked along into the culture of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the people still clinging to the word in balance, the truly authentic, the truly organic, are becoming the scourge even within evangelicalism. Remember Paul's words? The missionary visiting? In danger from my own countrymen, in danger from false brethren. Yeah. Lord in heaven. Miriam Ibrahim. No, she is your bondservant. Lord, Pastor Said Abedini and his wife know that they are your bondservants. Lord, all the Christians outside of America, for the most part, who are paying, in many cases, the ultimate price for not shrinking back, understand they are your bondservants. Lord Jesus, have mercy on your capital C church. And Lord Jesus, help us to be bond servants of yours, not just devotees or fans or friends who call when we need. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh just pretend I'm Matt.